Welcome to Infinite Earth Radio. We believe that in a world of finite natural resources, a smart and sustainable future is only possible by lifting up people and unleashing unlimited human potential. Infinite Earth Radio will not only help you learn from bright visionary civic leaders who are building smarter, more inclusive and sustainable communities, but you'll discover how you can bring these ideas to your community. And now, here are your hosts, Mike Hancocks and Vernice Miller-Travis. Welcome back to Infinite Earth Radio, where we talk with thought leaders and change agents who are transforming the future by building smarter, more sustainable, and more equitable businesses and communities. I'm Kip Scheuer, Climate Change Program Director at the Local Government Commission and host of our regular monthly series on adaptation and livable communities, where we're discussing ways we can create more resilient communities by fostering knowledge exchange, identifying new resources, and sharing innovative perspectives and tools. We're running these episodes as a series to highlight adaptation issues leading up to our California Adaptation Forum, which is going to be held in Sacramento from August 27th to 29th. The Biennial California Adaptation Forum gathers the adaptation community together to foster knowledge exchange, innovation, and mutual support to create resilient communities throughout the state. You won't want to miss it, so register now at CaliforniaAdaptationForum.org. Today as our guest, we are honored to have Raj Pandya, Director of the American Geophysical Union's Thriving Earth Exchange. The purpose of the American Geophysical Union, or AGU, is to promote discovery in earth and space science for the benefit of humanity. At AGU, Raj directs Thriving Earth Exchange, which helps volunteer scientists and community leaders work together to use science, especially earth and space science, to advance community priorities related to sustainability, resilience, disaster risk reduction, and environmental justice. Raj also chairs the National Academies Committee on Designing Citizen Science to Support Science Learning and serves on the boards for Public Lab and the Anthropocene Alliance. He was a founding member of the board of the Citizen Science Association and has helped lead education and diversity-related activities for the American Meteorological Society. Raj, we are so grateful for you to join us today. Thank you. I'm really excited to be here. It's cool to be thought of as a thought leader. Not sure my 14-year-old daughter would agree, but it's still exciting. <laughs> well, we could compare notes on what our, our teenagers think of us another day. That's a whole different podcast. <laughs> So I hear that AGU is celebrating its centennial this year, and I'm guessing despite such a long history, many of our audience are kind of unfamiliar with the organization. So why don't you tell us a little bit about AGU, who your members are, and what AGU does? Sure. Well, first of all, AGU stands for American Geophysical Union. And probably the most important thing to know about AGU is that it's not American. Most of our members, about half of them, live outside the U.S. We do a lot more than geophysics. As you mentioned, we do everything from the surface, the core of the Earth, all the way to the surface of the sun and in between. So we have scientists who study volcanoes, hurricanes, earthquakes, tornadoes, thunderstorms, climate change, climate adaptation, even how solar storms influence communications in our atmosphere, even how other planets evolve. So it's a lot bigger than geophysics. And we're not a union. We haven't gotten anybody a pay raise in our 100-year history. But we're committed to the name AGU, so we're sticking with that. What we really are is a professional society for scientists who study the Earth and an organization for anybody who wants to work with those scientists. For the scientists, we offer publications where they can share their results with each other. We offer meetings where they can build their science together. And for other organizations, other people, we try to offer connections into the science. 
And that's actually where I spend a lot of my time in the Thriving Earth Exchange, is trying to help non-scientists and scientists work together to influence the direction of science and influence how science is used in communities around the world to make a difference. Wow, that's a great opportunity to be at kind of a critical point in this society today. How are you guys using this uh, centennial to maybe reflect on where you've been and where you're going? What a great question. Thank you. I will be really direct. I think science has done amazing things for the planet and for people on the planet. And I think it's capable of helping figure out some really significant challenges that we face there are going to be 9 billion people on this planet and trying to figure out how each of those people can live the best possible life that's safe from hazards, that allows them to thrive, that gives them economic opportunity, that gives them human rights, and does it in a way that not only supports this generation, but all the generations that are yet to come is a really significant challenge. And I think science can be a part of that challenge. But in order to be part of addressing that challenge, in order to figure that out, we need to think differently about how we do science. Our traditional model of science has been walled off in laboratories, built kind of by scientists. And we might come out at the end of our experiments and say, hey, here's what we found. You should take advantage of this or you should use this. And what we're seeing is that mode of science doesn't really work for the kinds of challenges we're facing now. Instead, we kind of need to break down the boundaries of the laboratory. We need to engage people as partners. We need to do science in the places we live and work. And that, that idea, I think, is the pivot point for our 100-year anniversary. How do we transition from a model of science that's been about basic discovery about really smart people working in isolation to a model of science that continues to be with really smart people. But instead of working in isolation, they're working with really smart people from all other walks of lives. And they aren't just promoting discovery for the sake of discovery. They're promoting discovery so that people can have better lives. And they're taking seriously all the steps it takes to go all the way from a basic understanding to a difference in someone's life. Interesting. I mean, it sounds a lot like you're grappling with many of the applied practice questions that we confront at the local government level and in community practice as well. How do we engage our communities better? How do we work in service of them? Maybe can you give us a couple examples of maybe science being practiced better in that way that really represents that model that you've seen? Yeah, I can, I, I'll give you two examples. One comes from the field of public health, and it's a, it's an example of a young public health researcher who went to the White Mountain Apache Nation. And he was from Johns Hopkins University, and he had a research program in mind that he developed while he was at Johns Hopkins University. But when he got to the reservation and started working there, people told him that research project wasn't that relevant to their community, that what he was doing wasn't bad, but what they were really interested in is understanding why pediatric diarrhea was such a problem, why so many of their children were getting sick and sometimes even dying because of diarrhea. And he had the presence and the kind of wisdom and the courage to abandon what he had come to do and to design a new research program with people from the community. And they provided input, they provided guidance, they participated in developing this new research program. And the new research program investigated pediatric diarrhea. And as a result of that research program, which he developed in that kind of collaborative way, the way we treat pediatric diarrhea completely changed. When he started this program, the standard treatment for pediatric diarrhea was to withhold food and water until the infant gets better. 
And what they discovered in this project was that that actually led to dehydration, which caused many of the bad outcomes. It wasn't the diarrhea itself. It was the dehydration from withholding food and water. And they pioneered the use of oral rehydration therapy, which today probably a lot of people are familiar with as Pedialyte. So that's a great example of how use-inspired research and community-developed research leads to a different and a better outcome in science. And I guess if we can apply that kind of approach in public health, I think it's interesting to think about what that approach looks like in the health of our planet and our relationship to the planet. Yeah, this is an adaptation podcast. Do you have a climate change example in that vein? I do. I have a, a cool project that, that I had a little bit of a opportunity to be involved with in Africa. And so in Africa, meningitis is a huge problem. And it's a particular problem in a region called the meningitis belt, which is in the Sahel. And it's the region of dry to wet transition at the boundary of the Sahara Desert. And what happens in this region is meningitis is endemic, which means it's kind of always there in the background. And every once in a while, it flares up. The last big flare up, I think, was in 1998. Something like 200,000 people were affected, 10% of whom actually ended up dying because of this. And the vaccine that's available isn't a very robust vaccine. It can't be given to kids. It can't confer what's called herd immunity. And it's only good for two years. So if you've been vaccinated, you have to be revaccinated every two years. So because of the limitations of the vaccine, the strategy to manage meningitis is to wait till epidemics occur and then try to contain them. On the climate change thing, what was happening is as we saw the region of dryness grow because of land use changes and because of climate change, the range in which meningitis or the area in which meningitis was a problem was growing. So you've got a not great vaccine, something that you can only use to contain. You've got growing vulnerability. And the question is, how do you manage this? And how do you deal with that continuing growth of vulnerability? And what is interesting about meningitis and what almost everyone who lives in the meningitis belt will tell you is that it is only a problem in the dry season. As soon as seasonal rains come, meningitis incidences drop. And so the question became, how do we use that information to manage meningitis now and in the future? And as a result, we were able to do some pretty careful statistical analysis, and we realized that it was the humidity, the ambient humidity, that was the best predictor of meningitis susceptibility. And by raising ambient humidity, or by knowing ambient humidity is going to raise, you can confer some protective immunity against meningitis without having to use the vaccine. Or you can allocate the vaccine to places where it's staying dry and away from places where the moisture protects you. It even opens the possibility that you can do simple things like offer dampened window shades that moisten the air. It confer a little bit of immunity to humidity. And I guess the coolest thing about that story for me is the core piece of insight that you could man manage meningitis by managing humidity came from the people who lived in that region and understood the transmission of the disease in a very concrete way. And they were able to offer insight to climate scientists and health scientists who work together. Those are both really great examples and obviously make a very profound difference in the lives of the people who are accessing the science and many people beyond them more indirectly as, as the science practice changes. So it seems like we have a, a, a communication nexus that needs some care and feeding, if you will. I wonder if you have some thoughts or insights on 
what scientists can do to be more like the person you mentioned on the reservation and be willing to be brave enough to throw away what they had thought they were going to do? And what can community members do to better take advantage of scientists and science when it's made available as a resource to be a part of? Yeah, what a great question. If it's okay, I'll start with the community leaders. Yeah, please do. Okay. So one of the things I think community leaders can do is really be confident in their own knowledge. I see so many community leaders who will sort of end a sentence or begin a sentence with, well, I'm no scientist, but, and I, sometimes I just want to say, wait, wait, you are a scientist. You have this incredible knowledge base of what you live and what you do. And you make decisions and really complicated decisions every single day. And you observe things every single day and you, you reason things out every single day. That's no different than what a scientist does. They may have more sophisticated tools and they may know more and more details about a very narrow area, but you in practice, practice are a thinking, rational human being with really important contributions to make. And you do a kind of science in your daily life. So don't be afraid of that. So that'd be one thing I'd say is, is you know stuff. Don't be intimidated by scientists. The other thing I would say is um, scientists are actually pretty great people, even though we can be a little weird. And I, I'm counting myself among as a scientist here, right? We're raised in a culture that's a little bit different than everyday culture. You can go to a science talk and it's perfectly acceptable at the end of the talk to stand up and tell the person who just spoke everything they did wrong. And that's not normal behavior, but it's perfectly normal in our community. So if you see a scientist doing that to you, it's okay to flag it and say, wait, that's not how we do things in this world. A great story. There's a former person who was a director of AGU who had come in with a background in organizational management. And he was sitting around with all the scientists at AGU, and they were discussing changes in the organization. And he was from the South. And at one point, he looked around the room and he said, now, I know y'all are critical thinkers, but let's all just try to say something positive before we go down this path. And I think I think that's a good example of, of one of the things that community leaders can help scientists do differently and something scientists can be aware of is that that norm of being critical isn't the same norm outside of science. The other thing, I guess, is to recognize that scientists tend to be really motivated by what they don't know, and they want to know everything possible before they make a decision. And community leaders in general need to make decisions and need to move towards action. And they often have to do that before they know everything possible to know. And that mismatch can be a source of tension when they work together. It can be managed. You just need to acknowledge it and figure out how you're going to address it. But at least recognizing that there is that difference between I want to know everything and then I'll make a decision and I need to make a decision. What do I need to know to make the decision? Those two different frames, I think, are important to recognize. Really interesting. And a a mentally pause for the infinite earth folks to say, you just gave us a good title for this episode, which was scientists are good people, but they're kind of (laughs) weird. Thanks. Yeah. The other thing I'll add to that, and this is a really, this was an interesting story to me. We, scientists want to be useful. I guess that's the the key thing. And the way I learned this was we invited community leaders to come and talk to a group of about 50 scientists about what the community leaders cared about and what they thought was their priority that they wanted to pursue with the idea that the scientists would then think about how they could be helpful, how they could use what they knew to advance those priorities. And at the end of the community leader discussion, one of the scientists got up and actually said, 
you know, you've talked about pollution, you've talked about climate change, you've talked about public health, but you haven't talked about energy use. And frankly, if you're not talking about energy use, you're missing the point. And it wasn't a really positive moment, but I talked to the scientist later and I said, you know, what was that about? And she said something that really stuck with me. She said, I really wanted to be useful and I do energy research. So I was worried if they weren't talking about energy, they wouldn't find what I had to offer useful. And I guess the point of the story for me is that scientists want to be useful and we need to learn how to frame what we have to offer in better ways. Like saying, if you're not thinking about this, you're missing the point is not the best way to say, I want to be useful. But it's something for community leaders to keep in mind too, that we may not know sometimes how what we do is useful. It may be useful for you to help us navigate that if you can. So it sounds like your program specifically, the Thriving Earth Exchange and Resilience Dialogue, which is one of the programs I think that comes out of that, are AGU's attempt to operationalize that space, to literally be the facilitator and broker of these community science practice engagements. Tell us a little bit about how those programs work and maybe some of the examples you're seeing of where they're being effective at helping communities respond to climate change in America. Great. Okay. I'd be happy to do that. Let me start with how they work. Typically, what we do is we sit down with a community leader, the staff at the Thriving Earth Exchange, or the volunteers who participate in Resilience Dialogues. We sit down with one or more community leaders, and we really begin by listening, by listening really carefully to what the communities value, what they want to be, what their strengths are, what their assets are. And for us, it's important that the conversation not just focus on needs and vulnerabilities, also focus on strengths and priorities. I had a mayor once who said to me, you know, it seems like rich communities get priorities and poor communities get needs. I want to have priorities too. And we try to keep that positive asset-based framing alive. So once we've done that, once we've understood what the strengths are and what the priorities are, we can understand where science, especially earth science, fits in, what kind of value it can offer. And we actually craft a job description in text. In the Thriving Earth Exchange, we sit down and we say, this is what the project would accomplish. This is the skill set we need. And then we go out and we recruit a volunteer scientist to do that work with the community. In that recruitment, we look for people who have not just great technical skills, but the right kinds of social and collaborative skills. And then our commitment is we're going to support those teams that form to work together to achieve the result that they just outlined. And when they do that, everything that is done is shared, is shareable. It's given back to other communities who want to use it. So let me give you some examples of, of some cool projects. One of the smallest projects we did was in Midway, Georgia, and it was a, a mayor who was trying to build a new city hall. And she wanted to make sure her city hall was going to be resilient to flood events. And not just current flood events, but flood events that she was seeing in the future. She had a feeling that flooding was going to become more and more of a problem in the future. This was coastal Georgia. So she worked with scientists to find out where she could place her, her city hall and how she could design it so that it would be safe during times of flood and it would remain accessible during times of flood so that it could be a place of refuge for people in the environment in the local area. And she, her town had 2,000 people. So this was a really forward-thinking mayor in a small town. At the other extreme, we worked with a food distribution network in Massachusetts and they were interested in knowing what they could do to make sure if their food distribution network would stay functional in the event of pretty extreme events. 
And 13 million people depend on that food distribution network to get fresh and canned food on a regular basis. So being able to have a plan for dealing with extreme events was really important. Those are two examples of the kind of work we've done. In the Resilience Dialogues, which takes a slightly different approach, it says, let's back up a step and let's just think about what even climate change might mean in our community and how we could take advantage of some of the great resources that are out there already and use them to advance climate resilience. They actually went from a place where climate seemed irrelevant to a lot of the city functions to being able to rewrite their development and master growth plan with a climate change lens because of what they learned through the Resilience Dialogues. Those are great examples. Thank you for sharing. It really helps me understand, and I hope our audience understand how you're doing this work in ways that are bringing things together. You touched on a couple things that I wanted to circle back with because I think it's so important in this work. I love the story about the mayor who said rich communities get to talk about priorities and poor communities have to talk about needs, and we want to talk about priorities too. There are clear economic inequalities going on in our response to climate change. It's who's getting hit harder and their capacities to address these. How is AGU using their position to kind of factor in that economic inequality and equity issues and climate justice issues in the work you're doing with communities? Yeah, that is such a good question. The fundamental thing we try to remember, I think, at AGU is that knowledge is power especially in today's sort of information-driven world. And science is a kind of knowledge. Therefore, science is a kind of power. And so attending to who has access to that power, who participates in that power, how that power is used, is a moral responsibility of any group that's involved in science. And at AGU, we're trying to take that moral responsibility very seriously. So we're asking questions about who's involved in science, how they get involved in science, how science decisions are made, whose questions get to be answered or who gets to ask important questions. And Thriving Earth Exchange in some ways is our effort to make sure that everyone who's involved in an issue has the opportunity to put their questions on the table and get their questions answered. I had a, a friend once who said, if you're not at the table, you're probably on the menu. And we want to make sure that that doesn't happen. We want to make sure people have an opportunity to be at the table and not on the menu. The other thing that I think is relevant in science is a lot of science decisions about what to research are made through a process of peer review. If a scientist wants to do a project, they often have to convince other scientists that it's a worthwhile project to do. And if scientists are predominantly from one background, you can imagine that the projects might predominantly serve people of a certain background. And so one of the ways AGU is trying to address that is trying to create pathways for more and more scientists from diverse backgrounds to be part of that scientific process so they can have a voice in setting priorities, scientific priorities that are relevant to the communities they might have come from and that they're still connected to. Oh, that's really interesting. Give me an example of what that looks like for AGU to help foster uh, diversity in the science community. Great. I will. Um, this actually came is a young man named Casey who came to me as an intern and said he was a Wampanoag Indian and he wanted to do research on a reservation. At the time, he was an intern at a national science lab. And so we looked for a scientist who was doing work on a reservation at that lab and found out that there wasn't a single scientist working on a reservation. 
And so we reached out to some other organizations and tried to find a way for that lab to learn about how to work on reservations and to make connections with reservations. And as a result, now that lab has a regular partnership with Haskell Indian Nations University with students who come from Haskell to the lab to learn research techniques, but then go back to Haskell and back to the communities that they came from before they went to Haskell and use those research techniques kind of in situ to address challenges or priorities on the reservations they come from. So that's a good example of the kind of partnership that AGU can help broker, that can help ensure that communities who may not have had access to science start to have access to science. I love that example. It sort of touches me in sort of (laughs) where I'm at right now because, uh, you know, I've been working with our equity committee for the California Adaptation Forum. And one of the things we were called upon to do was to not always represent underrepresented communities and voices as that community, but to find leaders from those communities who are leaders in their own right and to highlight and lift up their expertise while also being members of different communities. And I think too often when we the work that ends up happening around diversity or equity brings those community members in as community members first not as experts, not as leaders, not as partners. So I I really, it's exciting to hear what you're talking about. It reminds, there's a scholar who has talked about the assumed epistemological superiority of science. And I mean, I love that phrase. It's, It's both a really good diagnosis and an example of the problem, right? Scientists, we need to be open, not just to people coming in and following the rules and doing things the way we've always done them. Real diversity means people who come in as leaders with the capacity and the permission to change the rules and change the way we've always do things. Not just fit in, but change the fit. And that, I think, is what you're talking about when you talk about bringing in leaders as experts, not as representatives. Absolutely. Yeah. No, I appreciate that. And I think that's exactly right. And it is a good example of the problem defining the problem <laughs> when it's described that way. So you've, you've touched a little bit on local leadership and the importance of that. And we love local leaders. You know, we love our local governments and our local elected leaders and our local government staff and their community members. I want you to, if you have anything more to say about why that leadership is so important to AGU, by all means, go ahead. But I also wanted to pivot to the sort of elephant in the room, if you will, which is our federal engagement right now. A lot of work feels like it's been thrown back to the local level, and there's some good things happening. But we're also wondering about what's going on at the federal level. And certainly from a science perspective, the federal government has far more resources to be engaged in science. But yet we're in a, in a dynamic where that in the current administration seems very antagonistic towards science. Yeah, I think that's true. And it troubles me. On the other hand, there are some hopeful signs. And one of the things I guess I would remind folks is that there's still a lot of amazing work going on at the federal government. And for me, one example of that might be the U.S. Global Change Research Program, USGCRP. They continue to do amazing work. They've been doing it since 1990. They do periodic assessments of the state of climate science, and they bundle it up in really accessible, informative, helpful ways. And that work is continuing even under the current administration. In fact, they released their science summary a few months ago. It went through the review process. 13 federal agencies are still involved. Now, I think it's fair to point out that it may not get as much elevation from the administration as it would have maybe two or three years ago, as it did two or three years ago. But the fact that it's still going on is significant. 
So that's one area that I think is hopeful. Another thing that I think is hopeful is maybe a little bit burrowed into the agencies. There are still things like the Western Water Assessment, the RESAs, the Regional Integrated Science Assessments, the Department of the Interior has regional climate centers. All of those activities are still going on. So there's still plenty of places for a local leader who wants to plug in to federal resources to be able to do that. I will say, though, that a local leader who can stand up for the importance and the relevance of federal efforts in the climate space are really important right now. One of the great examples from the Thriving Earth Exchange is that one of the projects we worked with was in Lexington, Kentucky, and it involved a woman who was very interested in understanding the links between asthma and pollutants in her neighborhood. And one of the ways she was building that link was working with scientists using EPA data. And she was able to submit a letter to Congress about the importance of that EPA data that was read in the congressional debate that ended up continuing funding for that program at EPA. And I think local leaders have a kind of credibility and a pragmatism and a level of respect from federal lawmakers that is unprecedented. And so when they stand up and say these things are important to us, I think they get paid attention to. Thank you for sort of offering that empowering message at a very functional level for folks to engage with public processes at the federal level. You know, the other thing I'll say is that even when we made our commitment in Paris before we pulled out, that commitment wasn't just a federal commitment. That commitment rested on the kind of innovation that's always happened in communities of all sizes in the United States. And if anything, that level of commitment to innovating around climate solutions has just accelerated. It's accelerated at the state level. We've seen New York, California, several other states really step up to the challenge of meeting our commitment to climate change. It's accelerated as a corporate level. We've seen a whole bunch of industries say that whether the United States is keeping its Paris commitment, we are, or we're going to do our part to help the United States keep it. And it's really visible in kind of community levels. The mayor of Coral Gables is not interested in debating really, whether climate change is happening or not, or whether it's because of human impact. He's interested in making sure Coral Gables, which is already experiencing rising sea levels, is equipped to deal with it, and it's going to remain a great place to live for the people who elected him. And that kind of local commitment seems to trump any ideology around the causes of climate change. And it leads to a kind of pragmatic, let's roll up our sleeves approach that I think is the real foundation for innovation in this country and is the thing that's going to help us meet those commitments more than a presence or absence of leadership at the federal level. That's some great perspective. I appreciate that. Anything else that you want us to be aware of or that you're involved in or that we can get involved in that's coming up for you? Yeah, there's a couple of events. You mentioned this at the top of the program, the California Adaptation Forum is coming up August 27th and 29th. I think that's an incredible venue to meet other people and share strategies and share practices and build relationships. You know, it's not just what you do at the event. It's knowing someone you can call four or five months later when you're struggling with something and having an ally or somebody who's thought through something similar. And then Right after that, there's actually an event again in California called the Global Climate Summit, which is about subnational commitment to climate change adaptation and mitigation goals. So that's another great opportunity. That'll be the 12th through the 14th in San Francisco. And if you're outside of California, there are adaptation summits across regional adaptation summits. There's probably six or seven of them in different regions. So I'd encourage people to take a look at that as an opportunity. 
and then, you know, the other thing I would say, which I hope this isn't too self-serving is my whole job and the job that I, I wanted more than anything else was to try to help communities find scientists to work with them on local issues. And I would love to help communities do that. We have a staff of five people and that's what we do. So if you're interested in identifying a local scientist that would be a great partner, we'd like to help you find that person. That's so great to hear. Thank you for those resources. And I assume there's uh, other resources on the AGU website or the Thriving Earth Exchange subsite. Yeah. People might also want to check out Resilience Dialogues, which if you're not able to sort of connect in person, it allows you to work with a group of experts around issues in your community remotely through an online platform. That's something we've done with the American Society of Adaptation Professionals and with a couple of federal partners, and it continues to move along and develop. Fantastic. Well, we could certainly keep talking about these issues for a long time or talk about our kids and their uh, <laughs> perspectives on our work, but I'm afraid we're out of time. I want to thank you so much for joining us, Raj. This has been a pleasure. It's been a pleasure for me too, and thank you for doing this. Thank you for being sort of a voice for the importance of this work and for helping people learn about and continue their work in this area. Well, I appreciate that as well. So thank you to our audience for listening. We look forward to seeing you next time on Infinite Earth Radio. Infinite Earth Radio is a podcast produced by Skio in association with the Local Government Commission. To learn more about Skio, Infinite Earth Radio guests, or how you can make a difference in your community, visit our website at infiniteearthradio.com or join us on Facebook at www.facebook.com forward slash infiniteearthradio and Twitter by following at infiniteearthradio.com.